We'll look at several features of the use of poetry in Scripture, types and names, devices, images, affections, forms, intentions, messages, and readerships. I'll focus mainly on the Psalms, since these, we can agree, were all composed in verse. Our purpose is to gain from Scripture, from the Bible's use of poetry, insights to guide us in our own attempts to use such forms to make art serve the cause of truth. Welcome to the Inverse Theology Project. I'm your host, T.M. Moore. This is Volume 16, Number 5, Practical Theology. Our study of the use of poetry in Scripture begins with a consideration of the reasons various psalms were composed. Unless we understand why a psalm was written, we cannot fully appreciate its message or relevance to our lives. Our focus in this study is on calling. And our calling will be derived from the Psalms. Since everyone can agree these are written in verse, and since there are just so many of them to consider. So, here is part four in blank verse of Scripture and Poetry, an essay on calling. We turn now to consider how the Lord makes use of word art to reveal himself and to advance his purposes on earth. As mentioned, nearly one-third of God's word was given to us in poetic forms. From early on in Genesis until the very end of Revelation, God used poetry to make himself and his intentions known. We find this form in use in Moses' writing, in the prophets, in the wisdom literature, and here and there in the New Testament. It seems that God, in every generation, thought it best to send his spirit to inspire those who inscribed his word to use poetic forms. Of course, we may read Scripture's many poems like we read any other form, but I'm convinced that doing so deprives us of the depth, the beauty, and the mystery that poetry conveys when read as such. As William Dernis wrote, Theology invariably deals in images of love and of desire, which then connect the soul to God. Moreover, human longing for a life both good and beautiful, he writes, inclines us to shape practices in verse to focus our devotion. Thus, if we would gain the most from Scripture, we must learn to read not just its words, also its forms, including verse. The forms in which God's word comes to us differ as determined by the purpose of the text. Each form makes its specific contribution as it helps us understand, receive, embrace, and learn the message of God's word. So if we fail to take the form in which a text occurs into consideration, we will miss important aspects of its meaning. This is truer, I believe, of passages in verse, since frequently the images that are employed hold meanings far beyond those superficially conveyed. In case those images in forms and patterns which themselves communicate intention, and it will be clear, we need to learn to read these passages a little differently, but we'll see more of this as we proceed. It is surprising and instructive to consider Scripture's use of poetry. By understanding how this genre works in Scripture, we can gain a fuller sense of why God chose to use so much of it to make himself and his intentions known. Whole volumes have been dedicated to the attributes and use of poetry in Scripture. Here we cannot hope to be as thorough as those scholars. Still, I want us at the very least to glimpse the power of verse to heighten words and meanings, and to make a firm impression on our soul. 
We'll look at several features of the use of scripture in poetry, types and aims, devices, images, affections, forms, intentions, messages, and readership. I'll focus mainly on the Psalms, since these, we can agree, were all composed in verse. Our purpose is to gain from Scripture, from the Bible's use of poetry, insights to guide us in our own attempt to use such forms to make art serve the cause of truth. From there, we'll look to see how, through the years, great poets from the Christian movement have embraced that calling and pursued the work of poetry in line with Scripture and have demonstrated how this call can serve the cause of truth and glorify the Lord. We turn first to the types of poetry we find in Scripture. Classifying all the Psalms depends upon the vantage point from which one reads them. I believe the Psalms were given by the Holy Spirit to enhance our knowledge of the Lord and to enrich our life with Him. So while we may divide the Psalms by common themes, I find it more in line with their intention to consider why the psalmist wrote, what they were hoping to accomplish with their verse. At first, the psalmist celebrate the fact of God and of his many works, which in his grace include a trove of blessings for the people he has chosen for himself. Psalms 104, 147, and 145 exemplify this type of psalm. These celebrations of the Lord redound with wonder and amazement. Words can barely sketch the scope and magnitude of all God does and all this says about him. Nearly every psalm and much of all the rest of Scripture's poetry includes some element of celebration. As we read these poems, therefore, we should expect our soul to be raised up beyond our present circumstances into realms of majesty, immensity, and joy in which the might of the Almighty God embraces embraces us with love and makes us know how very rich his goodness is toward us. Next and following on this are psalms which want to strengthen our devotion to the Lord, that is to increase faith in him, stir up a greater love for him because of who he is and what he does, and make delighting in the Lord our constant mode of being in the world. Here we may think of more familiar psalms like 23 or 27, 46, and 8. It is no wonder that such psalms as these, perhaps more than some others, have been set to music many times and sung with both conviction and rejoicing by those whose glad souls experience their bond with God and the renewed devotion to him that such psalms elicit. This theme, like the theme of celebration, threads through many psalms and draws our gratitude, commitment, hope, and expectation. Some psalms clearly are inclined to be used as liturgies, that is, in corporate worship. We can see this in those psalms which are addressed into the choir master, for example, or which call the people to assemble and give worship to the Lord. Psalm 92, a Sabbath psalm, Psalm 50, and most of the psalms composed by Asaph and the sons of Korah. These psalms are for corporate use. They lead the worshipers in praising God, examining themselves, confessing sin, extolling God's majestic power and all his virtues, and recalling Israel's past as an important lesson leading to revival in the present. These psalms give a sense of what the Lord is looking for in worship, and they tell us how our souls unite in celebration as, our people, as one people to extol the Lord on high. A few psalms seem intended just to teach the reader how to understand events or situations, to remind, explain, or even to avoid despairing. 
These psalms overlap with other purposes, as do the rest, and yet they clearly aim at calling on the Lord for teaching. Here I place Psalms 25 and 119. Psalm 27 also fits here, as do many others. These psalms show the aim of teaching is to change us, starting in our soul and working out the changes there in every other facet of our life. A certain set of psalms I would describe as visionary. These point us to the coming of God's kingdom and instruct us how to pray and what to seek. They work to shape imaginations, hope, desires, and show us how to lay hold on what God has promised and to be revived in him. Psalm 72, 110, the second half of 22, and many more outline the broad parameters of how the grace of God will change the world and glorify his name once his eternal kingdom has begun to flourish on the earth. Some psalms appear to have a practical intent. They were composed to help, it seems, in some activity or undertaking. Thus, psalms of ascent prepared those journeying up to Jerusalem to meet the Lord in worship. David wrote Psalm 68 to rally Israel to contribute to the building of the temple, and Psalm 2 was used to mark the coronation of a new king on the throne of Israel. Within this category, I include those penitential psalms, like 38 and 51, which help us to connect again with God when sin has found its way into our lives, disrupting fellowship with him and weighing heavy on our soul. The book of Psalms, like all the poetry of Scripture, is designed to lead us to the throne of Christ, that we might see within his face the all-transforming glory of the living God, by celebrating him in lofty words and images, and by enriching our devotion to the Lord and to our calling to his kingdom and his glory, by uniting us before him in exalted worship, teaching us his ways and works, enlarging our best thoughts about his kingdom, and directing our thoughts, affections, values, works, and love to serving God, the Psalter demonstrates the power of verse to speak God's truth into all facets of our lives and to make use of poetry, its forms, devices, tropes, and images, to sink that truth deep in our souls where it is welcomed and can root to bring forth fruit to glorify the Lord. How does this work? Why is the use of verse especially beneficial for such ends? We turn next to investigate the aims of poetry and how it works when seen as such to serve the purposes of God. Visit our website, www.ilba.org, to discover the wealth of resources available to help you grow in your walk with and work for the Lord. Next, in Volume 16 of the Inverse Theology Project, we listen as Satan, resolute to the end, concedes the failure of his attempt to seize the throne of God. Until then, for the Fellowship of Ilba and the Inverse Theology Project, this is T.M. Moore.